Welcome. It's good to see everyone out on this terrible, terrible day. You know, it's not really that bad if you can stay out of the wind and you can stay inside. It's not too bad. We're very comfortable in here, but thank you for braving the elements and being here. If you're visiting, you're our honored guest. So please feel comfortable. We hope that you recognize uh, that you are our honored guest and you've been made to feel comfortable. Come back and see us at every opportunity. This month we're talking about the family of God. And Ian covered a great deal of that last week and our role within that family of God. This whole month we're going to be talking about that. Ephesians, the third chapter and verse 14, the Bible says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The family of God is both earthly and heavenly. The church, that is the church, the family of God on earth is the church. And as such, it's holy. Hmm. Just a group of people, right? It is. Absolutely infallible, uh, with, with faults, with, with problems. How could that be holy? 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says in verse 2, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, okay, that's the church, to those who are sanctified in Christ, that's set apart for the holy purposes of God. That is holy. Sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Saints means sanctified ones with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. There's the temporal part of God's family, and then there's the eternal part of God's family. And even the temporal part of God's family has eternal, heavenly, spiritual implications, applications. That family of God located on earth is sacred. It's holy, consecrated, sanctified. So we want to talk about earthly families within the family of God. Earthly families. It's interesting to consider that Christ came for families. Christ came for the, the first promise that God gave to Abraham. In Genesis 12, he said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Christ came for families. Also, came, also said, in, in you all nations will be blessed also. That's one of the promises. But the basic building block, at its basic level, Christ came to bless families. All families. So for the rest of this month, we're going to be talking about these earthly families within the family of God. But I hope we understand that families are ground zero. Families are the front lines in the battle against evil. And it's a battle, brothers and sisters. It is. It is. And it's so easy to get pulled off and pulled off. And we have so many, so many ways, so many things that lead us off one way or the other. So today I've been assigned the topic of godly men, of fathers and husbands. Been very difficult, maybe not for you to talk on that, but certainly you can't do a study like this and, and without doing some reflection, without trying to make application and seeing where I've failed and how I 
must do better in the future because I've been stepping on my toes for a few weeks now in this study. And we have so many, we wear so many hats. Men wear so many hats. Now, I don't envy John. Next week, he has ladies. So the only thing harder than the men would be the ladies. But we wear a lot of hats. We have a lot of jobs that we have to do, don't we? We're spread pretty thin. We're leaders. We're providers. We're teachers. We're mentors, mentors, protectors. And how does that work? How does that work? Do we protect them physically? Turn the other cheek? How, how, do, how does that work? How about emotionally? How about spiritually? How about morally, ethically? Teachers, examples. We wear a lot of hats. We wear a lot of hats. And how do we deal with persecution? Injustice. How do we deal with self-defense? How do we deal with toxic masculinity? Anything to do with a man now is regarded as toxic. Toxic is poisonous. Toxic is venom. Toxic is deadly. It's contaminated. And that's the way men are looked at. And some of that's justified. I don't mean that. Some of that we brought on ourselves. But we have wonderful examples in the Bible that were just as true, just as applicable then as they are today. And on Wednesday night, we've been studying the book of Numbers. And it's brought to mind the movements of the children of Israel for 40 years in the desert. And they were led by a man named Moses. So I want to talk about Moses today because he fits every one of these. He checks every box on the board. So let's talk today for a little bit about Moses. I want to thank Ian for the reading of the morning. Verse 22 there in Acts 7 tells us Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. Hmm. Learned. Mighty in words and in deeds. And when he got to be 40 years old, now when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren. Think about the qualifications of this man. We, we want men desire to be qualified. We'll get more to that in just a minute. But think about his qualifications. He's 40 years old, and at that time, that was in your prime. It's probably not in the prime now. 28, 26, I don't know what prime is now. But we'll talk about more of that in a minute. 20 years old, he had just reached the proper age. Okay? Educated by the best scholars on earth. People from Europe went to Egypt to be educated to learn from their mathematics and their astronomy and all those things. He was a scholar by any means, science, mathematics, trained as a soldier, trained as a builder, an academic, a mighty, powerful, intimidating man. He was in his prime. He checked every box, didn't he? An application, you want this guy, right? You're looking for someone to lead the children of Israel, two and a half, three million people, lead them out of bondage, I don't know anybody else who would qualify. Moses was the guy, was he not? And he was in his prime. And he thought he was ready. I would have thought he was ready. Most of us would have thought he was ready. He had a heart for that. He saw the injustice, the people, his people enslaved. He saw that. He wanted to help them. He had good intentions. Now, what's this got to do with Moses? Ephesians 5. 
verse 33. Bear with me for a second. Let's look at this. Husbands and wives, that certainly applies in the study. Husband and wives. Ephesians 5, verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you, that's husbands, in particular, so love his own wife and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You've made me, you've heard me make this statement before, and I believe it to be true, but I believe it, so it's not gospel. But I believe that the, the scripture, that God never tells us to do something that we do automatically. We're never commanded in scriptures, as far as I know, to do anything that we do. We're never told to go take a nap when we're tired. We're never told to do things. What we're told to do is things we have problems with to a greater extent or a less extent. Husbands, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And that's agape love. You know, again, an, an old evangelist told me years and years ago, and I believe it to be true, I've, I've searched it, that nowhere in Scripture, again, another absolute, but nowhere in Scripture is a woman commanded to, to agape love her husband. Well, hmm. Paul told Timothy to have the older women teach the younger women to love their husbands. That's, but that is phileo love. That's a powerful love, and I don't want to diminish that. But nowhere in Scripture, as far as I can tell, is a woman commanded to agape love her husband. The husband is commanded in many locations to agape love his wife. Why is that? It appears to me that women need that. Christian love always involves action. 1 John, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Christian love always involves action. We are commanded to agape love our wives as Christ did and gave himself for it. That's word and in deed. Okay, what about the second part of that? And let the wife see that she respects her husband. What's this got to do with Moses? Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why is that? Why is that? You know, that's also translated reverence in the King James. It's translated fear in other translations, American Standard and others. So what is this defined as? It's defined in the Strong's as to frighten. This word translated respects or reverence in the King James means to frighten, that is to passively be alarmed, to be in awe, to revere, to be afraid, to fear exceedingly reverence. Thayer's defines it as to scare away, treat with deference or referential obedience. What do men need? We live in a sphere, in an environment where if I have your respect, I have everything. And we know how to give and receive respect. We also know how to rein that in, don't we? We know how to insult someone. We can be very good at that, at withdrawing that respect. And a woman doesn't, doesn't live in that environment. Most women have, have a goal to help us along, change us just a little bit. Reasonably so. We need that. Try to push me off my spot a little bit. I'm fighting against it 100 miles an hour. But women want to do that. They can see that. And their challenge is to respect their husband. Our challenge is to love our wives. Okay, what's that got to do with Moses? Moses checked every box on the respect calendar. He was 40 years old. He was handsome. 
He was educated by the best scholars in science, mathematics, trained as a scholar, builder, academic, mighty, powerful, intimidating man. Born in this prime, he said, I'm ready. And who else was there? He could see the need. He had a heart for his people who were being, who were enslaved, were being unjustly hurt. Lose the term there. But, but they were, it was injustice to a great degree, and he saw that. Continuing on there in verse, in Acts 7, verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. He killed this, uh, this Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Hmm. First, we need to understand that there were no laws against Pharaoh killing anybody. Was it morally wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. But as the grandson of Pharaoh, he could kill anybody he wanted to. Okay, the only person he had to get it, get it approved by was Pharaoh himself. So there was the problem. When, there was the problem. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. He got it in his heart. Verse 23, it came into his heart, obviously by God, because then he understood verse 25 tells us that God would deliver these people by his hand. They didn't understand. How could they be expected to understand? Moses was supposed to be dead. We remember that all the male children under two years old were put in the river to be eaten by the crocodiles. He was supposed to be dead. Oh, but no, he was too pretty. He got raised by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. He had the best money could buy while the rest of the Israeli children were being killed. So now all these years later, he's going to, He's going to rescue them. That didn't go over too well, did it? He was qualified. Absolutely, he was qualified. Checked every box. But were they supposed to automatically follow him? The next day, he went out to see how things were going, didn't he? The next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away. Can you imagine pushing Pharaoh physically? Killed immediately. Killed immediately. How much respect did he have then? He didn't check every box then. Pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Can you imagine how that washed all over him? Thinking, I've given up everything. They're not going to follow me. At this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in Midian where he had two sons. Moses was trying to show that he was truly one of them. He wanted to help them. He had a heart for all of the injustice that they were suffering. Yeah, I'm one of the people. I'm the only person on the planet who could deliver this huge group of people. Over 600,000 men over the age of 20. That didn't count young people. That didn't count women, children. Two and a half, three million people probably in all. He was the only man on earth who had everything necessary to lead these people. What a realization. His whole world, he gave up, and they won't even follow him. Count in Exodus, tell, Exodus tells us, Exodus 2 and verse 15, 
tells us when Pharaoh heard of this matter, heard of him killing an Egyptian, he sought to kill Moses. Now, he had the same problem. He could do whatever he wanted to do. It was no crime for him to kill Moses. He just had to get it past his daughter. Then she loved her son, Moses. So he hadn't, wasn't going to kill him, but he was seeking a way to do that. Moses knew that. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Can you imagine how deflated this man was? The richest, most powerful man on earth, bar none, and he's running for his life to a land where nobody knows him. And set down by a well can also mean settled down by a well, and we know that he had chosen to dwell in the land of us. So either way, he's nearby this well, deflated, trying to deal with that. You know, what does a leader do in this situation? Moses stepped up, risked everything to deliver his people, had a heart for their suffering, trying to help them, trying to deliver them. They totally rejected him. Moses misjudged the situation. They couldn't relate to him. They were slaves. He was Pharaoh. How could they relate to him? He lost everything. Hebrews 11, the apostle Paul puts it this way, by faith, Moses, when he, when he became of age, that's 40 years old, that's when he became of age. That's in his prime. When he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Reproach of Christ means the reproach of godly people through all the generations. We're going to suffer reproach. It may be minimal. It may be great. But we're going to be asked to endure that, aren't we? Esteeming the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, he looked to the reward. He didn't take the short-term view, the suffering here and now. He took a long-term view. Verse 27, by faith he forsook. He rejected Egypt and all of its glory, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Had a heart for this. He had, he had undoubtedly seen this over the course of his 40 years, seen this, but when he became of age, immediately he wanted to do something about it. He stepped up, didn't he? Did Moses have good intentions? Absolutely. Did he go about things the right way? Absolutely not. He killed a man. God knew that he wasn't ready. Moses had to find out the hard way. Back to Exodus there in verse 15, we read that he sat down by the well. Verse 16 tells us, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. So he still has a heart for injustice, doesn't he? One thing I have big problem with, you probably do too, is bullies. It's difficult. And he still had a heart for injustice. He stood up to these men who were bullying these ladies, and that plural, shepherds. He stood up. You know, he didn't kill anybody. Doesn't appear that he even resorted to violence. So the, how does that relate to us today? How do we stand up and do the right thing, have a heart for injustice to try to help downtrodden, try to help people and do it without violence. 
Apparently he learned that in just a short period of time. It'd be real easy to sit there by the well and say, you know, I tried helping people out once not very long ago and it ended very badly for me. I'm not going to do that again. Ladies, I'm sorry, you're on your own. He didn't do that, did he? He still had a heart to help people who needed it, people less fortunate. But these ladies returned home. Verse 18, when they came to rule their father, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. He also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man. And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. Okay, a little better, a little better. But he still went from Pharaoh to what? Tending flock. Well, that's, that's a, a monumental fall. Genesis 46, Joseph is telling his brothers, be very careful when you tell the Egyptians what you do for a living. Why is that? For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. The only thing lower than a slave might have been a shepherd. How the mighty hath fallen. So much so that Moses named his firstborn Gershon, which means banishment. He was still wrought, still mourning, still wondering what he did wrong, wondering what what he should have done. His second son, attitude changed just a little bit, didn't it? Named him Eleazar, which means long definition. The God of my father is my help and has delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Little change in his attitude there, isn't it? He's growing. He's still a shepherd. He's still a shepherd. When 40 years had passed, Acts 7, that made him 80 years old. When he stayed as a shepherd, 40 years had passed, 80 years old, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount, Saint, of Mount Sinai. I'm ready for you to go. Can you imagine his response? Wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm 80. I'm a shepherd. I'm not qualified. I don't check any boxes. He checked all the boxes now. He didn't check those boxes when he was supremely qualified, when he thought he was. Numbers, the 12th chapter we read a couple of, studied a couple of weeks ago, tells us that the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And he was a very strong, fearless man of 80 years old. In those days, the years didn't mean exactly what they do now. It even tells us in the... Deuteronomy 34, that when he passed away, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. He was still a physical specimen at the age of of 80. He just didn't feel the need to use it. He's still capable of doing the work for God. He started out as a talented, strong, powerful, fearless leader, supremely confident, in his own abilities. Forty years later, he was still a strong, fearless man. But God had transformed him into a humble, faithful, devout leader, supremely confident in God's abilities. Still a scholar, still a scientist, mathematician, but he was no longer royalty. Hmm. People could relate to him now, couldn't they? Less useful, less intimidating. He wasn't the guy who we saw in the palace all those times. 
He was now a shepherd. He was now on an even plane with the slaves. Now he had a spokesman because God had spent these 40 years also getting Aaron ready to be his spokesman. Moses' plan failed miserably, fell flat on his face. God's plan worked to perfection. Truly, Moses was ready now. So what is the key to God's plan in this case and in every other case? Humble leaders. That's husbands, that's men, that's ladies, that's children. Humble leaders. We're all leading. We all have a sphere of influence. Young, old, thin, fat. We all have a sphere of influence. We're all leading. Show respect with a goal to gain nothing. Those who are less fortunate. That's what a humble leader does. Show respect to people who couldn't hurt you if they wanted to. That's what he had a heart for doing that over and over again before he learned humility. Accept responsibility, be willing to change, stand up. Here am I, send me, and encourage help from others. Iron sharpens iron. It takes more than one of us. We need each other. Humility is about realizing that we're not nearly as mighty as we might want to think we are. God knew that now Moses was ready. So faithful, godly example, leader, teacher, and mentor. How did he teach others? Numbers 13, a couple weeks ago we studied this. Moses sent these 12 spies out to look at the land of Canaan. See what it was about. See of all the things. Get you up this way southward and go up to the mountain. Look at the uh, fortifications. Look at the people. Look at the crops. Look at all these things and bring me back a report. Joshua and Caleb were godly men who brought back a good report. God's with us. We can take this land. No problem. The other 10 spies, these are leaders from young leaders from each one of the tribes. The other 10 came back and said, they're huge. These people are huge. We can't beat them. We're like grasshoppers before them. We can't beat these guys. God referred to that as an evil report. God had already told them, this is a land I will give you. I am giving you. They didn't have faith in God. So what was the result? Verse 14. Justin talked about this last Wednesday. The carcasses of you who have complained, these are the ten tribes, you have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. Your carcasses will fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, these ten tribes, every adult from 20 years old and up would fall. Their carcasses would fall in the wilderness. Verse 30, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. You're not going to enter, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. And they shall know the land which you have, de- have despised. These two young leaders, don't know if they were married or not, but they're young and they're leaders, stood up. You know, they tried to kill them. The rest of the people didn't like them not going along with the crowd. They stood up to stone them. If God had not intervened, they probably would have killed them. Against that much pressure, they remained fearless in the face of that adversity. They were blessed as a result. And not only them, but those blessings rolled down for generations when we stand up. We don't have to be violent. We can still stand up. 
we have to be providers. 1 Timothy 5 and 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, the household in those days was generational, many generations. Especially for his household, he has denied the faith and is worth worse than an infidel. How about teacher concerning doctrine? You know, we have a lot of different plans of salvation out there. Lots of doctrine out there. But Paul said, if we but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeated it for emphasis. Anyone preaches any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. We don't get to condemn people who have another plan of salvation, but we do need to warn people. How about holiness, godliness? The big, one of the biggest problems we have is holiness, godliness. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, the temporary part of our families and everything we see around us is going to be burned up. It's temporary. So shouldn't we be latching on to the eternal? Shouldn't we be latching on to the heavenly? Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We have big problems, brothers and sisters. Lustful behavior, pornography, alternative lifestyles, lewd behavior of all kinds. It's all about self, isn't it? It's all about ego. How did we get here? Well, it's not a new problem. It's been around four generations. Substance abuse doesn't help. Our inhibitions are reduced. Less conscience when we're abusing substances, alcohol, drugs, those type of things, abusing those things. How do we stand against the pain and suffering and death that this, that this type of behavior brings? There's nothing here for us. There's nothing here for mankind. There's nothing, certainly nothing here for Christians. Suffering, pain, and death is all. Nothing here, nothing rewarding, nothing permanent, nothing valuable. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Turn away from these things. Romans, the first chapter, tells us how this happened, originally happened, how we descended to this type of behavior, how mankind did that. And it's, I encourage you to read Romans, the entire first chapter, and it goes into great detail of the depths of depravity that the Gentiles descended down into. One sin led to a greater sin, led to a greater sin. But it all started out like this. Paul said, Romans 1 and 24, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that's the Gentiles, are without excuse. God's revealed himself to us in a myriad of ways. We don't have any excuses because, verse 21, although they knew God, now that's important. At one time, they had a relationship with God. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Neither were thankful, but they became vain or futile in their, uh, in their thoughts. Pardon me. And their foolish, foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
and changed the glory of the, of the incorruptible God into an image, made like two corruptible man and birds, four-footed, four-footed animals and creeping things. They made idols and worshipped these idols. They worshipped men. Therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who changed the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the created thing. That's creature. The created thing rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what's he saying here? That the depths of depravity that he goes on to list later on in this chapter started with something so basic as failure to worship and failure to give thanks. This entire chapter is about worship. Verse 25, worshiped and served the created thing more than the creator. They were worshiping man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things and alligators and snakes, images of these things. It's about worship, isn't it? Verse 21, although they knew God, they had a relationship to God, they did not glorify him as God. They worshiped other things. Neither were they thankful. It's a lot easier to be humble when we're thankful. I still find ways to avoid that. Even when I try to be thankful, I still find myself not very humble. Maybe you do too. But I think if we concentrate on these things, it all starts right here, brothers and sisters. Worship and giving thanks. It doesn't end here. Certainly we glorify God. Certainly we're thankful outside these doors. But it starts here. This is ground zero. This is the trenches. Our families getting together with other families. Fathers getting together with other fathers. Iron sharpening irons. Mothers getting together with other mothers. It doesn't end here, but it starts here, brothers and sisters. This is ground zero. Our families meeting with other families. James put it this way. Adulterers and adulteresses. James 4 and verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God's a jealous God. And if we have his spirit, what does that say? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Ground zero right here with our families meeting together with other families. Holiness, godliness, draw near to God. Don't forsake the assembly. Always remember to give thanks early and often. Philippians 3 and verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our family is. Citizenship is in heaven. God is in heaven. Our family's in heaven. We are pilgrims. We can look at this short life, or do we want to take the long-term view, the generational view, and leave those as leaders, as fathers, as men, leaders in every age, every gender, as leaders, the decisions we make are generational. Quickly on the husbands. We haven't dwelt on them much. Husbands likewise dwell with them in understanding. Not mad, not depressed, not mad, not depressed, not constantly going through husbands. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself. But deal with them in understanding. That's a calm, rational, 
All I have to do is get excited. And Doris is going, <laughs> I wasn't mad. I just raised my voice. Understanding is a calm person, not with lust, not with this constantly moving emotion, calmly giving honor to the wife. We know about honor, brothers. We know about that. Men know about honor. Unfortunately, we're experts at pulling it back too, aren't we? At insulting people, insulting their honor. We're experts at that as well. Giving honor to the wife. They're respecting us. We give honor to the wife as a weaker vessel. Moses had a heart for those who weren't as powerful. He had a heart for the injustice. Make sure we're not the injustice in our family. As being heirs together of the grace of life, fellow heirs, our job is to help each other get there. Are we doing that? Are we encouragers? Are we doing that? As leaders, as men, women, children, we have a sphere of influence. Are we encouragers? Especially those, the household of faith, we're heirs together of life. That your prayers be not hindered. We don't need that, do we? We do not need them. Are we working together as an earthly family to contribute to the success of God's family? Are we stepping up, seeing that, having a heart for what needs to be done? Are we doing those things? Moses humbled himself. That allowed God to use his abilities and his training and all the things he had learned to accomplish great things that he could not ever accomplish until he humbled himself and still until God humbled him. You're leading today. Are you trusting in your plan, your abilities, your understanding? Do you have a heart for those who can't do those things? Do you have a heart for service? Do you see things that need to be done? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We'll close with Proverbs 3, verse 5. Solomon said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength. Moses was a humble man. He had to learn humility. Some of, sometimes it takes a little longer to learn that. Some people learn it as an early age and are very good at that. But we're all leaders and we all have to accept the responsibility that we're leading people right now. Are we leading them in a good direction? Are we leading them down the wrong path? Do you know the blessings of being in the family of God? Do you know the blessings of God that are reserved for his family? But if you also need the prayers of the church for any reason, if there's a gospel subject in the audience, please come forward. Sit here on the front row and allow us to serve you as we stand and sing.